And we're going to look at the king's fall tonight. The king's fall, looking at Nebuchadnezzar and his final mention here in this book and uh, of the account of his life. And uh, this, this chapter is interesting. It's really an autobiography. So that's kind of neat. Uh, very few times in Scripture do you see uh, a passage of Scripture given to an autobiography of one of the heathen kings, but this is one of them. And another interesting thing about this, if you do a study starting in chapter 3 to chapter number 7, when you look up the, the original words and the original language and so forth, what you're getting is a bunch of words that are only used one time in Scripture because they're Aramaic. And so what you'll get is some associations that will say this will associate with this Hebrew word, but these words are, are very unique uh, for this particular passage. So as I was looking, doing word studies on the words in this chapter, really they are only mentioned one time in the whole Bible because they're Aramaic, they're not Hebrew, amen? And so it's an interesting thing when you look at that. And so here we have an autobiography and it's written in the language of the Babylonians. And of course, Nebuchadnezzar is the one that wrote it. And so interesting how the Lord uh, inspired uh, the scripture in relation to that. Amen. So nothing is too hard for God anyways. Amen. And so Daniel chapter four, we're going to be looking at the king's fall and I'll read the first uh, three verses and then we'll get into our first section here and we'll see how far we get down the, the study here. I just want to point out the, the handout sheets that you have tonight. Did everybody get one? All right. If you can possibly hold on to them so I don't have to print out another, you know, 70 pages next week, that would be a real blessing. Amen. And so put that in your Bible when you're done. And uh, that way I don't have to go through a whole stack every time uh, we come in. And of course, that's just a waste to you anyways, because you're not really using it. Amen. So fill the blanks and keep it. And uh, hopefully that'll be a help to you. Is this mic on, son? It is. Okay, good. All right, and so uh, we're going to look at uh, chapter 4, verse number 1 to 3. It says here, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, unto all people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied unto you. I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. How great are his signs, and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And his dominion is from generation to generation. <laughs> that is so neat. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you would give me the power I need to bring forth this message tonight. And Lord, it would just stir us and help us, Lord, to adjust things in our heart and prepare us for the future as well. We thank you, Lord, for this, this account. And we thank you, Lord, for the salvation of Nebuchadnezzar and others like him that have lived a wicked life. But Lord, you love them and you reach down and you save them. And I'm so grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen. And so, we're looking at our first section here. And I'm going to get there. got to scroll a little bit. Uh, in, in number one, we're going to look at the king's testimony. The king's testimony. So that's what really, in, in really encapsules here in this first three verses here. He's testifying a little bit. I want to look at his audience first. Um, this, the, the, what he's got listed here, how he's talking about the peoples, nations, and languages, those, that phrase or that phraseology is used over and over in Scripture. And so what you really see is uh, peoples, is, I don't know if you have that on your sheet or not, 
Uh, but all people is referring to the people of the same kind, not separated by race or they're not an ethnic group. So when it's saying all people, he's really referring to everybody. He's talking about the whole conquered world, everybody that could get his edict or his decree or his testimony here, however far he could send it. He wanted everybody on the face of the planet to hear what he had to say. That's pretty powerful. He had a testimony and he wanted to testify of what God had done in his life. And he wasn't happy with just telling his friends and his family or even those that are in his city. He actually wanted to testify to the whole globe. Isn't that what the scripture says we're supposed to do? Amen. It says, go ye therefore, or preach the gospel to every creature. And so what he wanted to do is make sure all people got this particular message. In Acts 7, 17, verse 26, it says, And he hath made of one blood all nations of men for to dwell on the face of the earth, and hath determined the times before appointed in the bounds of their habitation. And so one blood, understand that. Uh, there's no two people on this planet that have different blood. Uh, no matter where they're from, no matter what part of the earth, no matter how far they are away from us, we all come the, from the same source. Amen. We all have one blood. And so when he's saying all people, he's saying everybody of the one blood. Yeah. That's who I'm trying to reach here. And that's what our gospel is for as well. Amen. And number two, we have nations. So this is geographical boundaries. So not only does he just want to reach out, he wants to actually go into separate nations that have different kings and different leadership. Uh, like it says there in Acts 17, verse uh, 26, and he hath determined the times before appointed and the bounds of their habitation. I was talking to one of my sons today, and we were talking about nations. And he just said, well, that's what man did. I said, well, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says that the Lord determines the, the boundaries of the habitations. And so as much as we like to think that maybe there was a war that uh, established our boundaries and so forth, but God was in it. And God established the boundaries of Canada, United States, Mexico, South America, and all the countries within that, uh, you know, the European countries, that's established by God. It's pretty hard to move those boundaries, isn't it? Right now you're looking at the Russians once again trying to expand their boundaries. The Ukrainians try to keep their boundaries. And guess where the boundary is? Exactly where it was before this all began. And I wouldn't doubt when it's over, the boundary's still going to be where it just began as well. Amen. But anyways, that's up to the Lord whether that changes or not. The third uh, group here is languages. And of course, coming from Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon, very interesting statement, because where did languages come from? <laughs> Babel. So right here, he's sitting in the heartland of the languages, and he says, I'm going to send this out to all the languages. And so they were all of one language until they started building, building the Tower of Babel. And then the Lord confused their language, and they all dispersed at that point. So what drove them out to inhabit the different parts of the world was the, the separation of language. So that's kind of interesting. And so he says languages. And then he ends it up by saying, those that dwell in all the earth. That means those are living. Whoever's living in the earth... That's what this message is for, amen? In other words, you can just get from him, he just wants everybody, everybody to understand what he's saying. Even if their language isn't Aramaic, he wrote in Aramaic, but it, whether, whatever the language is, whether it's in Chinese, whatever it is, he wants this message to be translated 
and brought to every one of these language groups. All right? And that's the way we should look at the scriptures. That's the way we should look at the Bible. That's the way we should look at the truth. That's the way we should look at the gospel. Amen? That these, the, the, the message goes into all the languages. And so, Daniel 6, verse 25, you had King Darius use this same language once again where it says, Then King Darius wrote unto all the people, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be unto you, uh, peace be multiplied unto you. And so this, this is a type of uh, a greeting that was common in those days or used over and over. And you see that used again even later on, but maybe added to. Uh, Revelation, it talks about all the people, kindred, tongues, and nations. And it gives you a long list of those things. And you, so, you see that used over and over. And so we have the audience, letter B, we have the message. What is the message? Well, the first part of this message is peace from God. Peace be unto you. Now, this is different. <laughs> remember, remember Daniel chapter 3, how we looked at the end of that chapter? Whoever doesn't bow down to this God, we're going to cut him in pieces. Your house is going to become a dunghill. <laughs> you know, this is where we left off last time. But now his message is to the people, peace be unto you. What happened to this man? Something happened here. Because he's no longer the power-mongering dictator. Now he's desiring peace in the people's lives. Can you imagine how that would have impacted the world? If you had this one man, I know how many times I've thought over the years, the last couple of years, if even our leader would change his heart. How that could uh, put salve on this whole nation. If one man would change his heart, and I just can't imagine how that must have been when this man, who is harsh, who, I mean, we were talking, he put people in furnaces to punish them, you know. He tore down their homes. He destroyed countries. And he puts out a message there. It says, peace be multiplied unto you. My goodness. I would love to hear that message in today's politics. Yeah. I would like to hear one politician give me that message. Amen. <laughs> Peace be multiplied to you. Now, they'd probably be just talking out of both sides of their mouths, amen? But any way you look at it, it'd be a great message. And so, um, the message that Nebuchadnezzar has for all people is a message of peace. It's not a message of war. The war time is over. Peace time has begun. Uh, this word peace as a greeting, these words signified a wish for peace and prosperity and a general good welfare to those who were being greeted. I would love to hear that today, please. Somebody in leadership, somebody in the government, please tell us it's going to be okay. Amen? Wouldn't that just comfort your heart? But instead, we've got to turn to him. Let him comfort our heart. Amen? Anyways, uh, so this is a different tone than we heard from him in the past. And I think what we're going to hear from him is going to really tell us why this change has taken place. Um, in Daniel chapter 3, Actually, I'm going to move on from that. So, thinking about what he's doing here, he's bringing in the message of the Lord on a platform of peace. That's what he's trying to do here. Now, in chapter 3, we saw him bringing somewhat of a message of the Lord on the platform of force and law and decree. And that happens today in many churches too. They will, they will law in religion. Amen. That means you want to, we'll make you do this. But that's not what God wants. 
God wants us out of a free will to turn our hearts to him. Amen. Nebuchadnezzar finally got that in this particular transformation. So those that have to force religion are those that have no other message to give. Specifically, a changed life and a testimony of God's power and goodness. You think about this. A person that has to bring a message on the, on the platform of force or fear, or if you don't do what I say, you're going to hell, whatever it may be, is a person that has no other message than that. See, Nebuchadnezzar wasn't relying on that for his message anymore. He was now relying on the fact that there is a true God that changes people's hearts. And when a person is changed, they no longer have to rely on force. In a church like ours, if, if, if I didn't believe that God could change hearts, then I would take it within my hands to try to force change. But I know God can do it. And that's why we let God do it. Because I know he did it with me. Now, if you've never known he can do it with you, then you'll doubt whether he can do it with others. But I believe he can do it with you. <laughs> I believe he can do it with me. I believe he can do it with my children and their children's children. Amen. We've got a great message. And it's on a platform of peace. Peace with God. Of course, we know in this passage he will find peace with God. Romans 5, 1, it says, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first step. Peace with God is your salvation. That's how you get saved. Uh, Because everybody that's lost is at enmity with God. That means you are working against him. And you're his enemy. And that's not a good thought. (laughs) But that's true. And so what we must do is first find peace with him. And stop being the opposing enemy. Start joining up with him and have peace with him. But then there's a second aspect. And that's the peace of God. So you have peace with him. But now that you have peace with him, you need the peace of him. And that's another important thing for us as believers. Many of us have peace with God, but we don't have his peace in us. And that's detrimental to your Christian walk. Um, Like it says in Colossians 3.15, And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. One of my favorite ones is Philippians 4 verse 6. It says, be careful for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which passeth all understanding, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Amen. That's post-salvation. That's not pre-salvation. This is after we get saved. Now we need to go to the Lord with our burdens and learn to trust him with that burden. And he says, if we can do that, if we can do that with thanksgiving, he will deliver his peace back to us that will guard and protect our hearts. Amen. So that's what we need. So peace is very important. Peace with God, but also the peace of God. And then also the next part of the message that we need to understand here he's mentioning is the power of God. So not only the peace of God, but the power of God. Uh, Daniel 4 verse 2, it says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. So your testimony, no matter what it is as a believer, you, you are telling people somewhat of the power of God. That's what it's about. What, could, what did God do? Amen. How did he help me? Is somebody locked out there, guys? Make sure. I'm not sure. My wife is there. It's okay. All right. So 
uh, the power of God. Nebuchadnezzar thought it would be good to show the people this message. He wanted the people to share in what he learned about God so that he would, they would benefit from this. He wanted them to benefit to know that the God that he now trusts in is the God of great power. And he has shown that power through his signs and his wonders. Amen. And he's trying to convince them of that. We need to experience and know God and then find the need to share that goodness to others. And I think the reason why many of us do not testify or tell people what God's in our life is because we're not experiencing it. Amen? Now, Nebuchadnezzar, he's experienced it. He says, look at the signs that God has wrought towards me. To me. Amen? It's not to everybody else and all the big stuff that's going on, the big revivals and the big meetings. And He's saying, no, no, I'm telling you what he's done to me. Amen? And I'm going to tell you, we need to go to people and our testimony should have within it the peace of God, but also the power of God and what he has done to you. How has he changed you? What's different about you? How has he brought you down to reality? How did he show you the truth? Where's he in this whole thing? <laughs> Let's not fabricate a testimony. If you've got to fabricate one, then you've never met God. If you've met God, there's enough in that meeting that you've got something to tell people for the rest of your life. <laughs> Amen? Because there's the power of God there. In Psalm 34, verse 8, it says, O oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is a man that trusteth in him. And so that's what we got to give to people. It's kind of like um, the Samaritan woman at the well. She came to the well and, and so forth. And uh, Jesus asked for water. And, and, uh, and he, he said, you know, if you would know the water that I could give you, you would ask of me and I'd give you a water that you'd never thirst again. And she said, right away, she says, give me of this water. <laughs> give me of this water. You see, what we need to do is we need to stop trying to make the horse drink, uh, lead, lead them to the water, trying to make them drink. That's not your responsibility. You don't need to lead them to the water, nor do you have to make them drink. Your only responsibility is to make them thirsty. Now, how do you do that as a believer? <laughs> you show them how good God's been to you. If you knew of the water that I have, you would ask, and I would give it to you. You'll never thirst again. Boy, that just sounds too good to be true. So she thought, I, I need this water. <laughs> By the way, that message in itself is a statement of the eternal security. Jesus said, if you drink of this water, you will never thirst again. Yeah. Amen? What a great truth that is. And so he's talking about signs and wonders. The signs are basically just God communicating, a way of God communicating to man. It's not just a way of that God wants to wow people and God wants to say, oh, am I great? No, what he's doing with signs, he's, he's delivering a specific message. He always is. When there's a sign in the Bible, it has a specific purpose as it was given. And that's what's going on today. What we have is a bunch of people looking for signs, but they don't even know why they're looking for it. And when it happens, they say it happens, they don't even know what it, what it meant. And that's not what God does. Signs is various ways that God communicated, and the way he communicated effectively to this king. 
concerning his life and also throughout the history of the world. He's communicating the, the future, empires, everything. Amen. So these signs were given for very specific reasons. And then it says wonders. Wonders are to be, means to be astonished. And it's only in three instances here where he mentions this. This word speaks of the wondrous and perhaps miraculous deeds of God. And so basically what we're talking about, if there's a sign, it will leave you wondering. Amen. Signs and wonders. How many times even Daniel, that knew God very well, he sat there and was astonished. He wondered. Because whatever God did, whenever he communicated, it was just simply a powerful situation that was taking place during that time. And so that's what wonders is. God tried to do this in Egypt. In Exodus 7 verse 3 it says, And I will harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and my wonders in the land of Egypt. And that's why he sent those plagues. Each one of those plagues was communicating something. In fact, every one attacked one of their gods. They worship the frog. He says, well, let's bring the frogs out of the Nile and let them go jump around their homes. <laughs> Amen. And then they worship the, the cattle. And so the cattle died. They worship the sun. So he turned it dark. All these different things they created that they said were their gods. God was showing them, I am God. I am God. Signs and wonders. And they should have just wondered a little bit more in Egypt, amen? They didn't wonder enough at the signs that God was given. Uh, Romans 15, verse 19, it says, Through mighty signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and round about Ilyricurium, I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. So we know before the Bible was written, the apostles would use signs and wonders that would accompany their message because Jesus said, these signs will follow them that come after me. Talking about his apostles, if you read Mark chapter 16 uh, and on in that chapter, he by the word of God set people up to listen to the message of the apostles because he said this will accompany what they will do. Amen? And then when it happened, they listened to the apostles. <laughs> By the way, you don't need that today because now the word of God is finished. So we don't need signs and wonders to accompany our preaching because now we have the word of God. It's already given to us. Amen. And in fact, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, in verse number 12, it says, Truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. Amen? So this is the last time that signs and wonders are used in relation to the Christian church. You don't have it mentioned after this. The next time it's mentioned is in 2 Thessalonians 2. This is what it says. Even him whose coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and and lying wonders. Lying wonders, you know? So what's happening after the time of the apostles, now you're having people rising up, trying to do signs, and lying wonders, deceptive wonders. No, when the apostles did it, because they had a purpose, that was actually prophesied by Jesus Christ himself to, uh, to authorize their message because they had no written message at that time. It was all verbal. But now we've got it written. 
So the devil's going to come along and try to revive the signs and wonders, but the Bible says they're lying. It's deceptive. It's a deceptive wonder, not a true wonder. Amen. And so what we're talking about in our testimony is the true wonder of God, not the lying wonders. And so the power of God, number three, we have the personal testimony. In verse number two, it says, I thought it good to show the signs and wonders that the high God hath wrought toward me. It's personal. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar could claim that these signs and wonders were wrought toward him. The word wrought means to be carried out or to perform. So these signs and wonders were performed towards Nebuchadnezzar. Think about that. Now, I've heard of signs and wonders, but what if God would give you a sign of wonder and it was, ex- it was for you specifically? That's what blew him out of the water. <laughs> this isn't the first time. In fact, he got a dream back in Daniel chapter 2 where God spoke directly to him about the future of the empires. And it was a great sign to him. He's finally starting to get it. And in this chapter, now the sign that he's getting now in the wonder is a little more close to home. It affected him where he lived. Amen. And that made a big impact. And so these signs and wonders were performed to Nebuchadnezzar. It was personal, but yet it was public. I remember one time I went door knocking, knocked on a door uh, back home in my hometown. It was actually in the country a little ways. And I knocked and I remember that was a, that was a place there was a big St. Bernard. And we went to that door and that St. Bernard was right there. And I just kind of got out of the car and just, Lord, help me. And he did. <laughs> I went to the door. St. Bernard just looking at me, not wagging the tail. I was thinking, oh boy, this doesn't look good. And we went to the door. Now they probably wonder what in the world am I doing getting out of the car with a St. Bernard like that out there. But we did it because we were just foolish. <laughs> Amen. We knocked on the door and we started to ask her about salvation. And she just looked at us. You can see right away she closed off. She says, oh, I have my own faith. I have my own faith. And right away just closed the door. Now, I don't know about you, but if you've got your own faith, and that faith is not good enough to get outside your door, there is something wrong with your faith. In fact, I don't know about you, when I have even a Mormon come to my door, you you know what I want to do? I want to share with them my faith. I want my faith to go across the door. In fact, you go to 1 Thessalonians, when the, the, the Thessalonians, uh, Paul made the testimony how that their faith was spread abroad throughout all the region of Macedonia within three months of that church being started. They already spread it abroad. That same word for spread abroad, abroad is the same word when you go back to the Gospels and Jesus went out of the house. He went out of the house. And so I thought about that, connecting all of this. You know what? Our faith has got to get out of the house. It's got to leave. It can't just stay. If your faith is all personal, oh no, I just have my own faith. Well, then there's something wrong with your faith. I don't want a faith like that. I don't want a faith that is so weak that you don't even see the need to go tell your neighbor about it. To, to have God do such great things in your life, and yet you don't feel that it's important enough to tell somebody at, at work or somebody close to you what God has done for you, I'm wondering, is that real? Or is that a lying wonder? Or is that a true wonder? <laughs> what is it that God has done in our life? Is it not worth <laughs> the stepping out of the house over the threshold and going telling people what God has done for us? So it's personal, 
where yes, it is my faith, but it's my faith to give to others. The Bible says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee. So I need to be concerned about my neighbors and those I talk to, those I, the, the person at Dairy Queen or McDonald's or wherever. I, I know those poor folks. <laughs> if there's Christians around, they probably all get gospel tracts. Everybody's in the city doesn't get them. These workers do. Amen. So I am sensitive about that. If I've given one, I don't go and give the same person one over and over and over again. Amen. But yeah, we got to think about these people. The Lord will bring you across somebody at a, a supermarket maybe a security guard, maybe somebody that nobody ever has. You should always have a gospel tract in your pocket, ready to give out, so that they can hear the gospel, they can see what power that God has wrought towards you personally in changing your life. Amen? Psalm 107, verse 1, it says, O give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endureth forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he hath redeemed from the hand of the enemy, and gathered them out of the lands from the east and from the west and from the north and from the south. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so. Yeah, yeah. Say so. Don't ever hold that back. You better tell people that you are redeemed. Amen. That's great. A great thing to do. And number four, the fourth part of this message was praise toward God. He's lifting up the Lord in praise little bit different than he used to <laughs> when he was somewhat lifting up God when God did great things for the three boys in the furnace and when he did great things in, in explaining the dream and so forth. He was impressed, but somehow he still kind of tacked it on to his God group. Amen. But now he's not in his God group anymore. He's left that God group and now there's only one God. There are no more gods. There is only God with him. He says in Daniel 4, 3, How great are his signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. He talks about great signs. He refers to the value and significance that God has given. So there's value here. When it's talking about great, he's saying this isn't just a, a parlor trick. There's value to what he's telling me. And then he also talks about mighty wonders. It describes the unsurpassing might and wonders of God among the nations. Mighty wonders. And also the everlasting kingdom and dominion. And that means a perpetual period of time. So he finally comes to the point where he realizes that this God has a kingdom that will continue forever, even though mine will cease. His will continue. Amen. Anyways, number two, the king's dilemma. We'll look at verses four to nine. And don't worry, I'm not going to keep you late tonight. If I do, you can stand up and say, preacher, you, you promised. All right. It says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in mine house, and flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of the Babylon before me, and that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. 
Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And before him I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee, tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. So he's giving you the breakdown of his conversation with Daniel, and what he said. And so I find some interesting things that he says in this particular passage. So letter A, we're going to look at the flourishing before the dream. The flourishing before the dream. He says, I was at rest in mine house and flourishing in my palace. Babylon was no longer at war. They were during peacetime. They said at this point that Nebuchadnezzar built a palace And that palace, because of the power and the manpower he had, took 15 days to build it. 15 days to build his palace. That, my friend, is marvelous. (laughs) I mean, he must have had a lot of things worked out to get that done. And that's a matter of history. He says, resting in my house, I was at rest. That means he was at ease. He was in a state of safety. He was in a state of contentment. He was in security. Um, He had no external threats of war or revolution according to its contextual usage. He was just simply at ease, at feeling safe. When he was at home, he felt safe and secure. He was content having everything he could possibly desire. You ever felt that way? You ever go home and just sit back and say, you know what? I got everything I need. I'm safe. I'm secure. Life is good. Amen. That's what he was feeling, all right? Also, number two, he was flourishing in in my palace. So flourishing means to grow luxurious, to be green. It indicates with reference to a tree limb, a lively, fresh, tender green branch, flourishing and developing. So flourishing doesn't mean it just looks a certain way. It means it's continually growing and becoming more and more in his palace. So he built his palace. He's got all kinds of things. In fact, he was the one that designed the, the, the hanging gardens of Babylon. This man had some very incredible uh, inventions that he brought to be here. Some of the wonders of the world. Amen. He was flourishing. And the things at the palace were only getting better. Buildings were being built. Great ventures were being accomplished. He had political superiority. He had countries and nations throughout the world sending him tributes. So he had money rolling in. He didn't have to lift a finger. Now, talk about flourishing. Wouldn't you like to sit at home and have the paychecks just come to your mail? Say, yeah, that's great. Thank you very much. (laughs) He had nothing to worry about. Until the dream. (laughs) Amen. And something changed. In verse number five, it says this. I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. So here we have the fear after the dream. So we have the flourishing before, but now we get the fear after. Afraid means the idea of, of one slinking or crawling, such as a serpent or a worm, to back away or tremble in fear. 
that's a far cry from what we just heard resting in my house. <laughs> Amen. This dream filled him with dread. It caused him to worry. It caused him to slink back. He lost his security, but he couldn't put his finger on exactly why. Something's not right here and I'm afraid. I don't know what's happening, but it's, it overtook his mind and heart. So he calls in his buddies. <laughs> and so this I call, let her see, the fools attempt to interpret the dream. <laughs> and the fools. Yeah. <laughs> Daniel 4, verse number 6. Therefore made I decree to bring in all the wise men of the Babylon before me, that they might make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. Surprise, surprise. Once again, these pagan fools thought that they would run in and save the day. It's interesting, they came in first. I don't know why Daniel didn't come in first. <laughs> I think ultimately, Daniel figured, let them try first. Let them fail first. Let them be revealed first for what they truly are. And then he came in afterwards. He wasn't urgent. He wasn't worrying. But these guys always had an agenda. So they, they, they had to be there first. We want to be the hero. We want to catch it before Daniel gets there. Amen. You can be sure they knew Daniel was there. Amen. And so they came first. But they could not bring truth out of the dream. Which doesn't surprise me because 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. I'm going to tell you something. Even if they would have been able to interpret this dream, they would have been too afraid to tell Nebuchadnezzar what it meant. Because they had no, no belief in protection from God Almighty. Now Daniel did, and we've learned that in the next couple of chapters, when he's going to go to the lion's den. He believes God. Amen. These guys didn't have that kind of faith. So I'm wondering, what are you doing? If you're going to go in there and actually find the interpretation of the dream, which you're not, I guarantee you won't tell them. You'll lie to them anyways, <laughs> you know. And that's what prophets did throughout the Old Testament. They would constantly, when they, got, uh, when they were asked for wisdom, they would always say things that brought peace to the king. And the Lord many times warned them over and over, you say, peace, 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 but sudden destruction shall come upon you even all the way to the Antichrist. Peace, peace, peace. <laughs> you know, that's the way we are because we want to be the hero. We don't want to be the one that gives people the bad news. We don't want to be the one that has to deal with sin. We don't want to be the one that has to deal with problems. We just want to smooth it over and walk away as the hero. Well, then don't be a pastor. That's all I'm telling you. Amen. Letter D. <laughs> the friend's ability to interpret the dream. The friend's ability to interpret the dream. Verse 8 it says, But at the last Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Before, I, before him I told the dream, saying, O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret troubleth thee. Tell me the visions of my dream that I have seen, and the interpretation thereof. Number one, the king respected Daniel. He had a respect for him. He used Daniel's Hebrews name, Hebrews, Hebrew name, Hebrews, Hebrew name twice. So within this passage, remember, he's the one that changed Daniel's name to Belshazzar. But it's interesting to me in this passage, in this chapter, twice he uses the name Daniel. 
He says, this is Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, after my God. He wanted to make sure that he, we understood that the name Belshazzar had nothing to do with Daniel. <laughs> or the God of Daniel. Now, I thought that's kind of interesting. He had a respect where actually he's learning to love him. He's learning to respect him. And where he's actually even not even using the name that he himself gave him. And he's using his Hebrew name of all names. And that Hebrew name is what? God is my judge. <laughs> you wouldn't think he'd want to use that name, <laughs> but he did. It's true in this account for sure. Letter B, the king explained that Daniel's Aramaic name, do you have these letters here? I may have not given them to you. You do? Okay. The king explained that Daniel's Aramaic name was due to his gods, not Daniel's. And so he pointed that out, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God. He separated. He says, this is not Daniel's God. Very clear, in, you know, here. So number two, so the king respected Daniel, but number two, he also trusted Daniel. He trusted Daniel. Notice what he says here. O Belshazzar, master of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in thee, and no secret trouble of thee. I thought that's pretty neat. To know that there's a prophet where there's nothing that's hidden that troubles that prophet because he believes God. That's quite something. So a secret is a mystery. <laughs> There's no mystery, he says, that troubleth thee. That means, troubleth means to be difficult or to baffle. The verb depicts the inability to solve a mystery or puzzling thing, such as imagery in a dream. So he's saying, there's no mystery that you cannot solve. There's no puzzle that you can't put together. That, my friend, is a king that trusts his wise man. That he would say that. So he didn't say that to the other group. <laughs> oh, my boys, you, there's nothing you cannot do. He didn't say, in fact, he was already probably looking through sideways at these guys. They've lied to me before. They're probably going to lie to me again. But not with Daniel. The king knew that Daniel was never baffled by anything. He knew he could figure out 